Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, we're running, we're changing the game, and wow, have we got a topic for you today. What's the buzz on the street? What's the buzz on the web? I found a quote from Bo Derrick. The young ones out there around the world are probably saying, Bo, who, what? Bo Derrick, Mary Kathleen Collins, born in 1956. She was the star of a movie called Ten, the numerals 1010. In her swimsuit, she became a best-selling poster girl. What can I say? Uh, And now she's living with actor John Corbett, if anybody is interested. But here's her quote, very appropriate to our topic today. She said, whoever said money can't buy happiness simply didn't know where to go shopping. Let's let that sink in for a second. The key word is shopping. Think retail. So what's going on in the retail world? Well, Ongoing digital innovations in our hyper-connected world have dramatically impacted consumer buying behaviors and expectations. That means you, every one of you listening around the world, and I know there are thousands and thousands and thousands of you who will hear this live today. It's February 15, 2017, and we're live from New York at 11 a.m., or you're going to hear it on demand in a couple of hours, and you're going to hear it for a long time. So we're talking about you, your buying behaviors, your expectations. Well, you are now challenging re- Retailers to change to your needs, your demands, your expectations, or guess what? You will help make them obsolete. So the question is, how bad is it for retailers? Well, we have a quote we used. This was a topic we first dug into on December 1st, 2016 on our Internet of Things with Game Changers series. And I quoted back then Ingram Micro Mobility's Bashar Nadawi. And he said, in five years, consumer electronic stores, as we know them today, won't even exist or will our favorite apparel brands. That is dire. So smart retailers are doing something about it. They're taking action. They're stepping up. They're becoming digital survivors because they know if they don't, they're going to become digital dinosaurs. The writing is on the wall. Whether the store is a brick and mortar with walls or whether it's an e-store, we will find out. Is it too late for the laggards? We've invited back our three panelists from December 1st. Let me tell you who they are and then we'll get started. First up, we'll be speaking with Brian Kilcourse, a managing partner at Retail Systems Research, LLC. We know them fondly as RSR. Joining him on the panel will be Doug Stephens, founder of Retail Profit and author of two Books on Retail, The Retail Survival, Reimagining Business for the New Age of Consumerism, and Reengineering Retail, The Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World. Not even digital, it's after digital. And rounding out the panel is Greg McStravick, President of Database and Data Management at SAP. Rumor has that they all love to shop, so let's see what they have to say. I'm going to open up with Brian Kilcourse, and Brian has sent us a quote from... U.S. President Barack Obama, and this quote is very, very recent, January 2017, probably just before he left the, left the White House to go do parasailing with, uh, who is he with now? He's with, um, not Ted Turner, the other one, uh, who is it? Who is he? Sir Richard Branson, how could I forget? I get them all confused, these men with the, the billions and billions. Here's the quote that he said, Barack Obama. You just saw what happened to retail stores sales this past Christmas. Amazon and online sales are killing traditional retail. And what's true there is going to be true throughout our economy. My goodness, is this a prophecy? Brian Kilcourse, Happy New Year belatedly. How have you been? 
it's not a prediction if it's true, right? <laughs> it's actually <laughs> happening. So yeah. um, um, if you saw what uh, Warren Buffett did yesterday and with his investment in Walmart, you get a clue as to, as to what's changing. Tell us, in case somebody didn't get that, what's the news from Buffett? He, got, he sold his shares in Walmart, which is a, a substantial position he had in the company, and he said that uh, Amazon, what's going on in Amazon is disruptive and is going to get more so. So he's investing in uh, Apple and in U.S. Airlines. Interesting. I'll have to call my broker right after the show and say, don't sell <laughs> yeah, off so. half my position in Apple and, yeah, get the airlines. Very, very interesting. How come you picked a quote from Barack Obama? This is, I believe, the first time in a thousand shows that anybody has quoted him on one of our shows. So how come you picked his quote, Brian? Well, he's a thoughtful person, and, uh, and, he, and he observes what's going on in our society and our economy and around the world. And uh, it was in a conversation he was having. It was just a, a very casual comment that he made. Uh, but I, it struck me as um, in sync with what we in our little company are seeing everywhere, and that's that the impact of digital and direct-to-consumer is, is, is big and getting bigger. And we've reached a tipping point, and I think he recognized that. And in his own way, his own understated way, he was pointing it out. Very good. Thank you very much, and I hope he has a great vacation with Sir Richard. Let's leave it at that. Doug Stephens is up next, founder of Retail Profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, talking about profits and prophecies. And Doug has selected a quote from George Blankenship. Interestingly enough, George Blankenship deserves to be on Wikipedia, but he's not. So I used his LinkedIn profile to find out who he is. He's the You're going to love this. He's the director of Smiles for the Blankenship family. He's a lot more than that, of course. From January 2016 to the present, he has been an independent consultant at Amazon. There's that word. Providing industry insights, information, and high-level guidance to the internal Amazon team focused on opening, get this, new Amazon Books retail stores. He has more than that in his resume. From 2010 to 2013, he worked at Tesla, another avant-garde, very much on the forefront of innovation company. He was the VP from July 2010. 10 to October 2013. He was the VP of Store Design and Development, aha, Shades of Retail, In from just a couple months in 2010. He was the VP of Worldwide Sales and Ownership Experience. We're going to get that experience word in the show today from October 2010 to 2013. Looks like overlapping and VP of Worldwide Retail for in 2013. So here's the quote Doug has selected from Mr. Blankenship. We try to rationalize why innovations from other sectors don't apply to us rather than focusing on why they do. Doug Stephens, same to you. Happy New Year belatedly. Have you been? I've been fantastic. Thank you very much. Fantastic is good. We'll take it any day. So talk to me, Mr. Blankenship. How would you pick the, how did you pick this quote and and how does it apply to our topic today? Well, George and I both were speaking at a conference last year and we met there and we were actually just having a chat backstage and he he said this uh, to me, and uh, and I made a point of writing it down because I, I really think, and it's something I talk about quite a bit myself. It, the fact of the matter is, most companies that you speak to will tell you that innovation is paramount. You know that innovation is a core value, and that uh, a tremendous amount of the organization's effort and time goes into innovation. But when you scratch below the veneer of most companies, I think you very often find this condition that George was talking about, where there's this innate defense mechanism on the part of a lot of companies where they actually resist 
uh, picking up insights from other categories. And, and there's a tremendous amount of organizational effort that goes into saying, no, that doesn't apply to us. That doesn't address the nuances of our business or our category or our market. And I think that's a huge mistake because there, there are, you know, I think the really rich learnings from an innovation standpoint are the things that do come from outside your category and sort of break the, the, the stasis that a lot of organizations find themselves in. So it just seemed profound to me and, and uh, very germane. Very interesting. Do you think that they're in denial, Doug? Come on. The writing, as I said, the writing's on the wall, whether it's the brick-and-mortar wall or the, the e-storm wall. The writing's on the wall. Are they hiding? Are they afraid? Are they reluctant? Are they ignorant? Are they in denial? What, what do you think it is from a psychological standpoint? Oh, I, think there's a, I think there's a tremendous mischaracterization, frankly, of, of what is going on. And, <clears throat> you know, yeah, uh, when you look at a headline like uh, the one that Brian mentioned where Warren Buffett is now pulling money out of Walmart and, and putting it into, uh, you know, digital players like, uh, like Apple, um, it, it sets up this, this belief in people's minds that this is a binary equation, that as online retail increases or as digital penetration increases, physical retail, therefore, must die or we must, you know, shed uh, square feet of retail. And frankly, I, I think on the surface, yes, that's how, it's, how it looks. And I think a lot of retailers are accepting it as being that simple. But frankly, and, and I, I talk a lot about this in my latest book, it's a lot more complex. What's actually happening is far more complex and we're actually embarking on, I think, a, a historic transition in retail whereby we are going to, as consumers, we're going to have very, very different expectations of our digital experiences, but we're also going to have very different expectations of our physical experiences. And it's not that physical retail experiences are going to go away entirely, but I do think that the store as we know it today and the store as a, purely as a distribution mechanism for products is going to go away. We're simply not going to need the stores of the last you know, 100 years. Uh, that's that's going to cease to function. But it, it doesn't mean that physical spaces are dead. It means that retailers need to reinvent how those physical spaces look and feel and act. Thank you, Doug. Very interesting. And thank you for introducing me to George Blankenship. Glad you got to know him. And now Greg McStravick is waiting very patiently. And Greg has selected a quote from Sir Winston Churchill. Come on, the long name here. Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. K-G-O-M-C-H-T-D-P-C-D-L-F-R-S-R-A. A lot of letters after his name. Prime Minister of the UK from 1940 to 45 and 51 to 55. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1953 for his overall lifetime body of work and I don't know if anybody knows this besides me and probably Greg does in 1963 Sir Winston Churchill was the first of only eight people to be made an honorary citizen of the United States very profound and here is the quote there is nothing wrong with change if it is in the right direction amen to that Greg how have you been I have been fine Bonnie and yourself very well. Thank you for asking. Love the quote. Talk to me. Did you know Winston Churchill was the first of, of fewer than 10 to be made an honorary U.S. citizen? 
I thought you were going to stop at Did I Know Winston Churchill, which would really <laughs> date me. Um, no, uh, I, I obviously was aware of it. I read a book called The Last Lion. Um, it's a tremendous biography on Winston Churchill, and he's just my favorite person in history. So often he's my go-to person for quotes as well. Appreciate it. So talk to me. Nothing wrong with change if it's in the right direction. Who knows if it's in the right direction? Is Are we back to prophets and prophecy? Well, I, I just, uh, first of all, I think it's interesting. My two colleagues that I'm joined here on this panel with both have deep, deep retail experience. Uh, if you look at my role and responsibility, I cr- cut across a swath of industries. So I, I don't have as much domain expertise in any one industry like retail as these two gentlemen do. But, you know, I, I thought it was almost prescient that we, we started with a Barack Obama quote, not because of the political landscape we're in, but because of the content of his quote. And mm-hmm. it, that it is going beyond just a retail shopping experience or a retail vertical in this case. So we see change and the advent of change in every single industry we serve. And uh, we've talked in the past about being in industry 4.0. Certain industries and certain verticals are at the epicenter of this industry 4.0. Some are still a little bit on the periphery, but all of the, them are being affected. And I, I'd like to share one other thought uh, yeah. around um, the second colleague's comments around, you know, the inability of organizations to change. You know, I think about this a lot. I deal with companies about this a lot. And companies, cultures, and people are made up of human beings, us, people like us on the phone. And it's not uncommon or it's not odd to realize that the more mature, parentheses around this, leaders in a company or the older people are typically the ones in leadership positions in a company. And their frame of reference is very, very different from younger cultures and younger people. And that's why I watch a lot of companies have an aggressive hiring strategy around youth mm-hmm. and young talent. Because the, the, you know, the older folks, with all due respect, including yours truly, our window is shorter than the younger folks. So our investment horizons, our priorities and our strategies are fundamentally dictated by that. And I think that affects a company's ability to innovate probably greater than anything else. It's the willingness of the leader to have an interest and a desire to change what's working. And that's precisely the time you're supposed to do it. And I think it's the biggest cholesterol in any corporation. It's their inability of their leaders to see far enough out and then have the willingness to disrupt themselves for that future that, quite frankly, they don't see. Wow. Well, I, I think we need to change the whole the whole purpose of the show. Greg, that was very deep, very profound, and very interesting. And, and you're definitely not, I, I don't want to break it to you too harshly, but you're not the senior senior on the show I am. So you have to step down a, a rung on the window being very short Gladly. for the future. <laughs> I must tell you that I, I am I am young for my age, but my mother turned 100 last week. I have to wow. tell you that. And we still co-host a TV show together called Senior Moments, The Happy Ones. So just want you to know you got to get in line there. Okay. So I'm, before I ask each of you where you're calling from and what you're drinking today for our little segment called What's in Your Cup Today, I want to get Brian Kilcourse and Doug Stephens to comment on the very profound statement and very knowing that Greg McStravick has just shared with us. So Brian, thoughts? Talk to us. Well, I think uh, he was right on. I, people don't like to change fundamentally. Um, that's uh, and uh, this notion of a burning platform is actually an important. Um, uh, let's call it um, 
uh, incentive to change. When people are successful, when companies are successful, um, and somebody introduces a, 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 an innovation that represents a change to their successful model, the natural tendency is to resist. Um, and that's a, a huge issue for, for companies, not just retail, but all companies, cultures, uh, organizations, governments, everything. Um, and... And so I think um, I think it's something worth uh, thinking about is how do you create the sense of the burning platform without actually being on one? I think in the case of retail, um, uh, I think retailers don't have to go through that exercise because, in fact, they're truly on a burning platform. And uh, it's time to either jump in the water or put the fire out, one of the two. Interesting. Jump in the water or put the fire out. Doug Stevens, love to get your thoughts. Well, yeah, I think along the lines of change, what we're also talking about is innovation and imagination. And um, I think a a lot of companies, uh, I'll put it to you this way, I work with a lot of companies that are right now, as we speak, undertaking uh, innovation projects. They're, They're working at, you know, trying to imagine some new reality for their business. But within that, a lot of tactical mistakes are made along the way. And and the first and most profound mistake that I see organizations make over and over and over again is they default to their most senior people when it comes to talk of innovation. So as soon as the, you know, uh, as soon as a powwow needs to be put together, usually the most senior and tenured people in the organization are called together to, you know, imagine what this future might look like. That in itself is a, is a fatal mistake for a couple of reasons. First of which, there's been study, study after study has indicated that being a, a great manager of people or being a, a good leader of people in no way necessarily correlates to being imaginative or innovative. And in fact, some studies have found that there's a direct inverse correlation. So the better you are as a manager, the less likely you are uh, to be a great innovator. And I think that's why so many of the most innovative companies uh, throughout the history of, of retail and, and consumer goods have been entrepreneurial companies where, frankly, the, the great innovator in the company hasn't been that great a leader. I mean, look at Steve Jobs, you know, I mean, brilliantly innovative person who in many cases was, was criticized as, as being, uh, you know, a less than stellar leader of people. So, um, I think that in itself is a big mistake. I think a lot of people want to embrace change, but the way they go about it is fundamentally wrong. Very interesting. Greg, I'm going to dial this over, circle around the table to you and get your comments back on what Brian and Doug added. Thoughts? Yeah, I just, uh, and obviously in listening to them, it's, it's, I think we're three different ways of saying a similar concept, which is, you know, and I think of the companies that do this really well. Um, they, they, they set up um, objectives like X percent of our revenues need to come from new product innovations in the last Y years. And so it starts at the top. It starts with leaders. It starts with culture. Um, but it can get stuck. And I, I just, you know, I, that's kind of what I was trying to say earlier. And I think the gentlemen are confirming that, that, you know, it, you rely on people to do this. And if my window, you know, we're all motivated by different but often similar things, especially in corporations. And if my window for my return on my investment is shorter than an innovation window, I might be less willing 
to embrace that strategy because, look, I, I, I don't see the payback for me. And, and I, I, I'm being very, very direct there. Um, the payback for me, meaning my personal return on investment, which typically is part of an agenda of any, any person in a, in, a, in a business. So that's kind of what I was trying to allude to. And most of the digital, you've used the word digital dinosaur earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the digital native companies I see are fueled, I hate to say it, by young people who are passionate about um, disrupting the status quo. And they have a much longer window and horizon, further out horizon than do some of the senior leaders in the more the mature entities or mature corporations I deal with. Thank you very much. Very interesting. I think you all deserve a break, but before we go there, I will circle back to Brian Kilcourse at RSR and ask you, Brian, where are you calling from and what's in your cup today or what would you rather be drinking that really makes you smile? Because your picture is this wonderful, almost a Cheshire cat, very knowing smile, Mr. Kilcourse. So, Brian? <laughs> well, thanks, Bonnie. I'm in Grass Valley, California, which is um, about an hour from uh, Lake Tahoe up in the Sierra Foothills. It's a lovely place. Um, it's our last sunny day before yet another week of wet comes and hits Northern California. And I'm looking at my lovely cup of Pete's coffee. And at this time of the day, I can't think of anything else I'd like to be drinking. Mm, what's the flavor? I know Pete's has some wonderful, I think there's a Major major Dickinson, is it? Or Major Dixon coffee? That's major just... Dickinson, that's a good one. Um, this is, is French roast, and I, <laughs> I drink about a pot of it every morning. I'm sure you oh, already knew that goodness. based on my energy levels, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to parry with you on that in a moment. Thank you, Brian. Doug Stevens, somewhere in Canada, where art thou, and what are you drinking, or what would you love to be drinking that makes you happy? Doug? <laughs> I'm uh, yeah I'm calling from just outside Toronto and um, I actually just got back uh, a couple days ago from from Rio de Janeiro I was in Brazil for about a week and uh, I'm I'm a hardcore Starbucks addict and there is there are some uh, Starbucks stores in Brazil but not nearly to the level of penetration that you find them in North America so. I was going through various periods of withdrawal in my uh, travels, so I don't have anything in front of me at the moment, but uh, it's good to be home, and it's good to be within spitting distance of a Starbucks. Let's put it that way. There you go. And if you were within more than spitting distance, or less, shall I say, what would exactly... Do you use the clover, by the way, when you go to Starbucks? You know, I'm, I'm, a, pretty, uh, I'm a pretty simple guy when it comes to coffee so i just have their bold brewed coffee but if it's too late and they're not brewing that then i'll i'll go to the clover okay very interesting i have some my my daughter and her husband are coffee oh i'll say aficionados uh, as a kind term they actually weigh the beans every morning they have a a double header breville machine and they weigh the beans and they measure them for freshness and they keep them at a certain cool temperature and when they go to starbucks straight to the clover that's what they do and they get the vintage beans that are special and they want it just so so i uh i'm i have to go get a clover one of these days anybody who doesn't know what it is look it up uh, let's talk to greg mcstravick greg where are you and what's going to make you happy in your cup. I am in Philadelphia area, and uh, I am actually just drinking water with no ice, so not very exciting. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Uh, let, let me ask you a question. What did you have over the holidays in terms of a beverage that made you really happy? Um, 
Is this, a, is this an adult show? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we span the ages. Go ahead. People can take it. <laughs> uh, I just enjoy red wine when I'm not, when I'm not working. <laughs> okay. Any particular kind? You're a Merlot fan? Are you a, a, a Pinot Noir? What's your pleasure? Um, uh, you know, I'm not a, uh, she's listening to people describe their coffee. Uh, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a neophyte, I guess, when it comes to many beverages. Uh, with wine, I just I typically just love Italian wine, so it really doesn't matter uh, what grape okay. or what varietal. I just love Italian wines. Okay, very good. I discovered Sweet Red, and I discovered a certain brand called Barefoot, and my local store said not enough people were buying it, so they wouldn't carry it anymore. So I went looking around here in, in Lake Success, Long Island, and found a uh, liquor store I'd never been to, and I went in, and they said, have you tried other brands like Sutter Home, Sweet Red? I said, you mean Sweet Red is made by multiple vineyards? They said, oh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of them here. I tried the other one, fell absolutely in love with it, and now that's the only store I go to because because talking about retail, gentlemen, they made my experience a positive one. Instead of saying, well, we don't have that, they said, can we interest you in another label of Sweet Red we think you'll like? Completely turned around my cognizance of what Sweet Red was, and now I have a new Sweet Red in my liquor cabinet. So there, so there. Somebody might even want to call me Sweet Red one of these days. I don't know. My my personal radio name is AKA Radio Red, so maybe I'll change it one day to AKA Sweet Radio Red. There we go. Brian Kilcoris at RSR, Doug Stephens at Retail Profit, Greg McStravagant at SAP. We're having a good conversation about the future of retail. We started this conversation December 1st, 2016. Seems like ages ago. It was last year on our series called The Internet of Things with Game Changers. That was the final episode of Season 3. Thank you to Ira Burke at SAP for getting these three gurus together. And now we have poached them and brought them on Coffee Break with Game Changers. In case you're counting, this is episode number 268. We are live. It is Wednesday, February 15th. Hope you all had a Valentine's Day that was special and delightful. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll do a deep dive into our roundtable portion. Our topic is Retail in Five Years. Digital dinosaurs versus digital survivors. If you're a retailer, we know you'd like to be in the survivor column. So stay tuned. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We will be right back. Michael out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP. SAP Systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. 
interesting. We were talking on the break. I was speaking with Brian Kilcourse and Doug Stephens and Greg McStravick about what's emerging in this conversation. We started out talking about the future of retail in five years. Will it even have a future in five years? Where will it be? Who will be the leaders? Who will be the innovators? Will they be the same people? The young part of retail, the older part of the more mature leadership force, workforce. And we decided that we might have a future topic coming out of this, the topic of change and disruption and innovation. We don't often talk about that as a standalone topic. So I'm going on my little sidebar. I'll come back to our main topic, which is, again, retail Retail in five years. Brian Kilcourse is going to start the roundtable. And Brian, I'm going to look at your notes here, and I'm going to pick the first one on the list. You say consumers will always shop. The question is, do they need to go to a shop to do it? Increasingly, the answer is no. So let's let's do our reality check about what's really happening in retail today. Brian, why don't you take two minutes, then I'll bring in Doug, then I'll bring in Greg, and then we'll find another topic in Doug's list. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, well, consumers, of course, we all shop. We shop all the time. As a matter of fact, um, you know, and on boring uh, phone calls, not like this one, Sometimes I'll be just shopping on my iPhone. <laughs> I do it do it constantly. Um, and even though I'm not a digital native, I'm a digital vacationer. It's just a part of my life. So consumers, consumers will always be looking for solutions to their lifestyle needs. What's different between now and 20 years ago is that consumers begin that investigative process. They start looking at their, their options and what they, what they can get and how much they have to spend to get it and where they can get it from. They begin all of that in the digital space, and it happens for even the most mundane of products. So the question for retailers, uh, somebody said uh, earlier that it's more complex than a simple binary yes or no, but the question for retailers is, so what would compel a, a consumer to come to my shop to finally uh, buy that product, to, to take possession of that product. Mm-hmm. And that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is uh, that consum- con- shopping is entertainment. Uh, we don't think of it that way, but it really is fun. Shopping has always been fun. The, what's changed in today's society is how people entertain themselves. And my best teacher for this is my little granddaughter, or actually I've got four granddaughters now, and they all do it. They, they play with their iPads or their iPhones or some sort of a digital device, and essentially they're entertaining themselves. These are these digital babysitters that everybody seems to have nowadays. In the context of shopping, the question is, how do people entertain themselves with shopping in, with, given today's realities? And I think, I think retailers are challenged to answer that question. Very, very interesting. We don't often talk about fun on these shows. We talk about retail a lot on many of our, our uh, topics, and we, we talk about experience, but we don't often talk about fun and entertainment. I like that. Let's talk to Doug Stephens. Do you agree or disagree with Mr. Kilcourse? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'll just say I, I typically I don't like panel discussions where everybody agrees with one another, but, it, but I, I have to agree. Uh, that, okay. Uh, that, that, <laughs> Is it a yeah, violent agreement? I, I we that, get violent agreements sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I mean violent agreement. I, I think, yes, I think there's a, there's a mischaracterization. And, and, and I think what we have to do is we have to understand where retail is coming from in order to understand just how vulnerable it really is. And, I mean, if we step back 20, 25 years, the primary purpose of a physical store was really to give consumers access in in a real way to products that they could not otherwise access. So I could go to a store and I could see products merchandised 
that I couldn't see anywhere else. I could get information about products from a salesperson or from a piece of signage that I also couldn't find anywhere else. And then, obviously, I could transact a sale and I could take that that product home. What we are venturing into, however, now is a world where my car, my refrigerator, uh, my digital assistant in my home are not, o- not only portals to, to purchase, but they're actually now uh, artificially intelligent. They are anticipating my needs and my wants. We're moving into a replenish, replenish what I call a replenishment economy where up to 15 to 20% of everything that I need on an ongoing regular basis could simply be you know, shipped to me without any intervention on my part as a consumer. We're standing at the threshold of virtual reality, which is not only going to allow me to shop from my home, but it's going to potentially change the definition of what a store is. You know, if we, we get out of the construct that a store needs to be like a store in a mall, I mean, why couldn't I, why couldn't my wife buy clothing by shopping a celebrity's closet in virtual reality, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, going into any sort of a conventional store in the virtual world? Um, so what we have is we're in a position now where technology is easily capable of fulfilling the purpose that stores used to fulfill. So to Brian's point, we now have to look at stores very differently. And what we have to appreciate is that stores do have an innate physicality that needs to be celebrated. When I go to a store, I don't just want to uh, look at boxes of product and inventory. I want to try things. I want to engage with products. I want there to be a social element to this, an entertainment element. I want it to be psychologically pleasing to me. And that's where I would say 99% of retailers right now are falling well short. So that's the transition I see. Very interesting. I want to do a quick uh, sidebar. Doug, that was you, Greg, before I get to you. I've, I've noticed that in, in my retail experience, and once in a while I do venture into a brick-and-mortar store, I am by and large disappointed because the people in the store, the clerks or the stock people or the salespeople, A, don't give a you-know-what's you-know-what. They are disengaged. They have no interest in being helpful. They do not know their inventory. They are not up to date on what the store said in the advertisement that they should be carrying. They simply don't care. They're poorly trained. They're distracted. They are on their iPhones doing retail shopping somewhere else while I'm in their store. It has not been a great... I, I am so thrilled when I can today go to a restaurant or a store and have a good customer experience. I look for anything, whether they smile, whether they greet you, whether they say, I'm sorry, can we order that for you, or we'd love to help you, or what can I do for you? It's a thrill just to have somebody pay attention because they know they represent the brand. Greg, let's get you in on this. Thoughts on the social element of engagement for consumer experience in the physical store? Yeah, so I'm sure... My colleagues here have done much more work or thought on this than, I, than I'm doing right now. But obviously that consumer engagement differs and matters depending upon the, the, the category of products. So as you, thought, you talked about the clerk experience and the types of people hired, you know, Nordstrom's always differentiated themselves on that, that skill. And I don't think a company like Nordstrom's will, will get away from that anytime soon mm-hmm. because their products that they sell lend themselves to more of a one-to-one relationship 
But when I think about digital and the retail experience and the consumer, um, obviously I'm thinking about it from a digital, you know, connection. That's what I like the way you described this, the genesis of retail 100 years ago, but it was bringing buyer and seller together in a, in a place that made sense for the, for the consumer. And it, we're still after that 100 years later, that connection between the buyer and the seller. And in a digital world, my ability as a seller to connect with that buyer it actually is growing. There's tremendous technologies that will allow us to have a digital footprint of that consumer. And it's the retailers that understand and those data sources and how to leverage them for that one-to-one experience that will be the digital survivors in the future. And, and I think to some degree, depending again on the category of product, um, the level of effort that the, that the, the seller will invest in that relationship will differ. Um, I'm actually in the middle of a car buying experience right now. And yeah, I do a level of research on the, online, but I'm still going to physically go. And I don't see me exiting that strategy anytime soon. And by the way, the buyer also matters too. Some people are willing to fully buy something like that digitally online. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my role in all this, Bonnie, is just to simply say there are technologies that are available today that will allow us to have a 360-degree digital footprint of Greg McStravick, what the hell he's thinking about, what he's, what he's been researching, and... That data is very, very valuable to a lot of sellers, and it's those companies that figure out how to use it that are going to be really effective in the future. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Greg, are you willing to give all this information? Is this against your will? Is this something they are culling from various sources of your current digital footprint? Where are they getting yeah, all this so, information? So when I go, let, let me give you a very, I'm just, I, I can speak in real time, right? So, um I've been, believe it or not, looking for a piece of apparel, a very specific piece of apparel for literally two years now. Now, some of you might say, hey, you're just lazy and you, you, you don't want to spend the money. No, I'm very particular on what my buying criteria are for this piece of apparel. And, and it's not inexpensive. And actually, I'm willing to pay heavily for it if I actually find it because I'll wear it, I'll use it, and I know I'll get my return. And so for two years, at different points during the year, I've gone to the Nordstrom site. I've gone to you name it, Hugo mm-hmm. Boss. I can go through a million brands of what I'm looking for. And I've actually put in descriptors, very specific descriptors of what I'm looking for when I Google search. Mm-hmm. If someone who has that product could know that about me and send to me a notification, I think I have exactly what you're looking for. Here it is. And I found it. I'd buy it in less than 10 seconds. That linkage between seller and buyer, it, it, it's, it's available. And I'm not, they're not asking me, can I use your clickstream data? It's theirs. Mm-hmm. That information is there. Um, so it, it really, Bonnie, for me, it's not even an option. I'd let them have it all day long. I talk about this in healthcare. I think I've done this in the past. People all say the biggest barrier to healthcare improvements and technology is the patient privacy rights. BS, pardon my language, I get passionate mm-hmm. about this. If, God forbid, I was dying of cancer, I would let everyone know what my digital footprint looks like, what my biopsy reports look like, what my DNA reports look like, what my metabolic rates look like, and I'd want to be compared to anyone else in this world who has a similar issue that I do 
and we know the protocols and treatments that work. Today, it's all paper-based. It's sad. And so I think that privacy can get eliminated when the common good of all benefits from it. And I think you'll start to see that affect myriad industries, not just retail. And, and obviously, healthcare is one that I spend a lot of time on. Thank you. Very profound. We've got another topic here, Greg. You're, you're, you're building my calendar, my, di- my editorial calendar for Coffee Break for the next couple months. I will be in touch, by the way. Thank you. I, I want to move on, but what you said is so interesting. I'd really love to stop for just a second and get Brian and Doug to chime in on this. This looks like this is the way. Yes, we're talking about retail, but it's getting much broader than that. Brian, thoughts on what Greg just shared about our digital footprint wanting retailers to take the initiative to be innovative about gathering all of these little bits of toe, toe prints on, on the landscape and putting them together into a profile that will help us be healthier, help us find what we want in retail. Brian, thoughts? Well, yes. <laughs> this has been actually uh, um, crowding the majority of my thinking for the last 10 years, certainly. Think about how we used to glean demand in the past, and because it's such a great indicator of, or um, if you will, a measure of how things have changed. The, the proxy for demand for the last 30-plus years has been the scanned item. So when you scan a product over, over the register at the store, that's the proxy for future demand. And, and that might seem very imperfect to us today, but that's all we had. That's what we did. And so we rationalized our supply chains. We did all those wonderful things. And now consumers have new information and new ways to get that information. We now have new non-transactional proxies for demand. The question is, can retailers consume that stuff in an interesting way and fast enough to intercept demand with supply when the consumer needs it? So this gets to a, um, an interesting uh, uh, perspective, and that's the, the two things that consumers don't have enough of anymore, time, number one, and oftentimes money. So the, they're looking for a solution to their lifestyle need at, at the right time and at the right price with all the right um, other value properties, you know, quality or convenience or whatever. So that. It's up to the retailer to listen to all of these signals that consumers are giving us, pre, let's call them pre-transactional demand signals. They're dropping off everywhere. They're leaving them all over the place. The question is, how can you turn that into an early signal to, of demand so that you can meet that demand at just the right moment in time? So that's a really big challenge for retailers because they didn't actually care before. What they did is they put supply in the store and demand went to the store to be fulfilled. Now supply has to go to demand wherever it might be. And that's a fundamental change to how the model works. Very interesting. Doug, talk to us. I'm always intrigued by the whole conversation around privacy. And, uh, you know, I think what, what is freaking us out now as consumers and as citizens is not necessarily the loss of privacy itself. I think what's What's concerning to us is the uh, speed uh, and the volume with which privacy can be, um, you know, attacked, where your privacy can be infiltrated. But the the idea that you know, the idea of not having privacy is not a new concept. I mean, if you think about. Now, think about the general store of the 1800s, you know, where most, most of the things that people bought, they bought in a general store. 
where the owner was very, very aware of everything that they were buying. He knew or she knew their preferences, uh, knew the members of their family and what each of them liked. If they had something shipped in from you know, uh, a big department store in, in Chicago or New York, then the general store owner received that package, so he was apprised of what was coming in. Uh, for a given family. So, I mean, you know, from that standpoint, a lot of families, their lives were, were essentially open books. Neighbors knew one another, and, you know, the, there wasn't a lot of privacy. But now it's on, you know, we're, we're at this period where this, this uh, infiltration of our privacy can be rapid, it can be unseen, and, uh, and, I, and I think that's giving us cause for concern. But, you know, to... Um, uh, to the point made earlier that, you know, we're willing to give up privacy in exchange for something else. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Privacy is just like any other currency, and we are willing to spend it wherever we feel we're getting a fair exchange in return. And this happens every day. You know, I, I give information to Netflix, and in return, Netflix gives me recommendations of things to watch. I share information with LinkedIn, and LinkedIn gives me lists of people who might be, you know, good people to, to partner with or to, to connect with. So these, these sorts of bargains are being made all the time. I think where we become most offended is where we feel that we've had privacy, just like a currency, stolen from us. Mm-hmm. without any exchange of value in return. We literally feel as though we've been robbed. But where we're willing to give privacy up is with companies who we trust and who we love. You know, companies that, that always follow through on that, that fair exchange of value. Uh, we're, we're more than willing to give up privacy and data to those companies. Interesting. Um, let's go back to uh, Greg. Any quick comments on this? I think you started this one. <laughs> I'm holding you responsible. So, yeah, as you say, you're holding me responsible. I, I, I just, yeah, I think they must probably said more elegantly just now that, you know, privacy is a, is a, um, a value of data curve, if you will. And so, you know, the return on giving up my data has to increase the more valuable the data is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, but I, I think it's absolutely true virtually all sources of my personal data I would make available if I got value back in return. And that's obviously a very personal thing, how you choose to value your different sources of data. Um, but I don't really, view, you know, everyone says security, security, yeah, I get it. But, but in general, there's technologies that will be able to solve for all that. We always do. And so I actually don't, in the long term, view privacy as a barrier to um, innovation and transformation, especially digital transformation. I, I actually don't even worry about it at all, quite frankly. Interesting. I had a, an issue with privacy last week. I found out that a reporter at CBS, Real CBS News in New York, was looking for me. How did I find out? He was leaving messages on my personal cell phone. He was tweeting to me at my personal Radio Red 777. He was uh, emailing me at the email I don't use too often in public, and I was barraged. I was intrigued. Of course, I was a little bit thrilled. CBS wants me. What do they want to talk? Turns out I had interviewed a gentleman who was on a very small news piece on CBS that night, interviewed him on my television show two years ago. The man was an education 
he was a basically a, a guru, a hero in the education system in New York. He had made one misstep. One bad judgment misstep on Teacher Development Day, and he had been canned from his position and moved. They wanted to use the clip of my TV show on the news, and I. But they didn't do it without my, with minus my permission when they couldn't reach me in time. It was a very short window to, to between reaching me at five o'clock and getting this thing on the news at six thirty because I saw the piece. They they wouldn't do it without my permission. So thank goodness I would have chosen to not have them use my piece, which was very positive with this man. I thought was a wonderful guy, very, very smart. He saved an entire high school from, from being wiped off the map, and now he made one bad judgment, and that was what made the news. So I was just intrigued. How in the world did a reporter get my personal cell phone number? Greg, do you have any idea? Was it out? Is there a directory of cell phone numbers now? Because I don't give it to people. Any idea? Yeah. That, no, I, I, I don't have the knowledge of... Uh, yeah. Cell phone companies selling data. I'm sure they don't for privacy reasons. So I'd imagine they got it in a more circuitous route. But um, <laughs> it, 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 again, I, I mean, but even cell phone data, you know, there may be value in, 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 I don't know the scenario right now where you would want someone to be able to get your cell phone data. I, I don't know. Let me give you a very simple example. Yeah. A, a loved one is in a, in a bad car accident. And the yeah. police need to find your cell phone. Of course. I'd want them to reach me. So, of course. you know, there's lots of use cases for the data, good and bad. And we just have to all have our own personal value levels on those sources of data and uses of that data. Yes. And of course, part of me was thrilled that he found me and I'm looking at tweets from this guy. I mean, he really wanted to, wanted to get my permission. I'm glad he didn't. But anyway, I digress. We True. really are at the crystal ball predictions part of the show, but I want to touch on one quick topic. I think we're going to have to do part three. Gentlemen, are you willing to come back in a couple months and do part three? Because we've barely touched the surface. Please say yes. You bet. Yeah, yes. I'll do it oh, in a second. I love it. I love it. I might have a date sooner than a couple months. Uh, Doug Stephens, I just want you to comment on one be- one note before we do, do a really quick lightning round of predictions. You say the be- the end of the beginning of e-commerce, the current ratio of e-commerce to brick and mortar sales with a plus or minus, minus 15 to 85 will be reversed in 20 years. Why don't you just elaborate on that for one minute, Doug? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and these are one of, this is one of those predictions where you really risk making a, an ass of yourself. Uh, I understand that. Um, there will be a lot of people that would say it's ridiculous that the idea that 85% of the things that we buy will be coming to us via online versus the 15% that we actually go to the store and buy. But, you know, to, to, to highlight this, I would only say look at the average, just, just picture in your mind the average grocery store. And just imagine uh, what percentage of that store is comprised of outside aisles, which usually uh, hold fruit and produce and meat and fish and, you know, fresh foods that somebody might go to a store to actually consider. And then think about the bulk of the products that are represented by the middle aisles. And that's everything from light bulbs to cat food, diapers, cleaning supplies, uh, you know, staples that you would use in the house like you know, rice, flour, sugar, etc. Um, it becomes pretty clear that the, the majority of the products in any given grocery store, for example, are replenishable products. They are not necessarily things that I need to go to the store to consider, to feel, to touch, to see the freshness of. I just know I, just know I need more of it, and that's why I go to the store and drag it home. Now, we are on the cusp right now of 
the mainstreaming of a tremendous amount of technology that would look after the buying of those center aisle products for us without any intervention from us at all. And that would free us up to go to the store to select our meat and our fish and our produce, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't have the need to go to the store for all these other products. And, and I see this as being, uh, this is going to be a snowballing effect going forward. So I see a future where by virtue of the Internet of Things, uh, artificial intelligence, digital assistance in the home, virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, we are not going to have to go to the store for very much at all. But we will go to the store for fun, for entertainment, for inspiration, and education. And we may pick up about 15% of the things that we need along the way. So that's my vision of the future. And you know what? You just gave your crystal ball prediction. So that takes care of you. So now let's go around the table in the same order. Greg McStravick, you're next. One minute. Talk to me. What do you see uh, in the next, let's say, 2020 or beyond? Um, I, I, the one thing I know that it's an absolute certain is that uh, data is the new oil or the new blood, if you will, in, the, in this industry 4.0. So this compounding effect of data it, un, unequivocally by 2020 will probably be at more than 100% of the volume of data that we have today. And so what will happen is every single industry, not just retail, will will be impacted by those digital natives who have the ability to understand the values and use cases of that data and transform the way they do things today, tomorrow, obviously for the better uh, for each of those industries. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that I can see it happening in every industry right now, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Very profound as always. We expect nothing less from you, Greg. And let's circle around to Brian Kilcore. 60 seconds. What do you see in the crystal ball at RSR? Well, as I alluded to earlier, um, that that the fundamental uh, business model will change dramatically. There will still be stores. They won't be what we are used to because that is, if you will, that was the first level of aggregation of demand where supply and demand met. It is no longer necessary for a, a broad um, swatch of our products that we, we, we purchase as consumers. Consumers are very, very willing, and they've demonstrated it over and over again, to outsource the lifestyle need to somebody that they trust. So the, the focus in the future will be how that happens. And, and for that reason, I think, although consumers will continue to shop as they always have, the whole purpose of the store will change from a place where demand meets supply to a place, as, as was just that, you know, of, of idea generation, innovation, entertainment, and those kinds of things. I think it will change a lot. Thank you very much. Very profound predictions from the three of you. I appreciate it. We are just about out of time. I can't thank the three of you enough for a conversation that started with retail and evolved into so many different places. And clearly to me, these conversations need to be had. So I will invite the three of you back for part three, and I will email you uh, in the next day or two and get on your calendar because I know you're all busy. Uh, thank you all for, for spawning such great ideas and for bringing so many thoughts to the table. That's why we call you thought leaders, right? So Brian Kilcore is always a pleasure. Doug Stephens, same ditto. And Greg McStravick, you're just always putting new ideas on the table and we really appreciate it. Whether you're a retailer or a shopper or whatever you are, uh, your view of industries changing, innovation, growth, leadership, company maturity, leadership maturity, always very profound and very appreciated. Shout out to all of the tweeters we had. My goodness, we have Janice at SAP has been tweeting and people I don't even know. We have somebody a 
Thief has been tweeting and a couple of other people at hashtag Digital Disruption has been tweeting at hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Uh, Rumi Zahn, whoever that is, thank you so much for your tweets. And I'm just going to say goodbye for now. So I'm Bonnie D. Graham. And shout out, of course, to Michael, our extraordinary engineer at the Business Channel at World Talk Radio for getting us on the air and keeping us on the air. So here's my call to action. I'm waiting for a smart seatbelt to say, Bonnie, you had an extra piece of chocolate last night. We'll make it a little looser today. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.